What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we have two stories for you. First, we discuss how some mining companies' operations are complicated by the biodiversity hotspots and pristine environments they operate in. And then we give an update on the biggest move so far of this proxy season, including a legally binding climate resolution at the second largest bank in Europe, HSBC. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Nevada in the U.S. is a state known for its largest city, Las Vegas. But the state is also full of national parks, with around 81% of it being owned by the federal government. And there are ample majestic views and dryland forests made up of brush and spruce and fir trees and desert plants and flowers. Those parks also sit aside some of the largest mining programs in the U.S. And recently these two things came into conflict after the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed protecting Times buckwheat, which is a wild flower that grows in Nevada, and they wanted to put it under the Endangered Species Act, which could hinder the progress of a lithium mine, uh, lithium being a key electric car battery material, being developed by Australian company Ioneer. This dispute is a paradigm of the problem we face in 2021 with mines and biodiversity loss. Mines are industrial feats of humanity and the minerals they provide are vital for both modern society and the desire to decarbonize our world. Without metals, we would basically be a hunter and gatherer society. And without lithium, companies like Ford, Tesla, and General Motors wouldn't be able to produce fleets of electric vehicles. But mines are often located in areas of invaluable ecological importance and their operations disrupt the healthy functioning of our environment and thus they threaten the survival of our species. There's a belief that the major environmental impacts associated with mining such as soil and water pollution, air quality issues, and erosion can be addressed if mining is done properly and sustainably. And that may be true, but it becomes very tricky when the mines are in remote and undeveloped areas, places of high biodiversity, and even places that are what we call pristine or undisturbed ecosystems. But these challenges aren't stopping companies and investors in mines. But the problem is communities and regulators and some investors are now pushing back and mines are being pitted against fragile and pristine environments, which increase the risks of operational roadblocks, stakeholder resistance, and general investor concerns. Or so says my two guests and colleagues, Sam Block and Jillian Malad, in a paper and blog they recently published on the subject. And so because of this news about Nevada, I wanted to hear more about this, so I called up both Sam and Jillian and asked Sam if I'm right to say that this issue is not just limited to Nevada, that it's an issue across our world and for many mining companies today. Yeah, no, we're seeing a, a lot more of these incidents happening around the world where different interests in uh, protecting natural resources are are creating some sort of hinder, you know, and, and a hurdle to developing different mining operations around the world. Um, I think we even recently saw this to a certain extent with uh, the U.S. you know, presidential administration suspending oil leases in uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And that certainly also is going to happen a lot more with mining companies. We have mines that we've seen also in, in Alaska that have had a very hard time developing uh, because 
um, the mine, you know, seems to threaten uh, or potentially could damage, you know, wildlife resources like like salmon or salmon spawning areas. Sam mentioned that concerns around wild salmon populations is the reason for one of the longest-running disputed mines in North America called the Pebble Mine in Bristol Bay, Alaska. And the reason the mine has stalled is because conservationists in Bristol Bay have been able to easily identify a species, salmon, that supports an entire region's economy and biodiversity. From the tiniest microorganism, they say, to the giant grizzly bear, life in Bristol Bay revolves around salmon. So companies and investors can, theoretically, prepare for these types of risks when they are easily identified. Salmon is a global commodity, everyone knows about it, and most cultures eat it, and salmon sales globally are around 17 billion US dollars per year. Where the risks become more complicated is when there is a less identifiable species or ecosystem near where a mine is being produced, such as the thyme buckwheat in Nevada or sentiment export from Madre de Dios in Peru that eventually degraded ecosystems alongside rivers in Brazil. This happens Tensions rise between the mining companies and the communities they operate in, and that's when things come to a head. And instead of working in collaboration to ensure environmental priorities are addressed alongside economic ones, you see legal attacks being mounted between mining companies and conservation groups, and sometimes violence and sometimes massive problems. And Sam is seeing that in 2021, that this is all becoming a much more pressing risk for companies and investors around the world. Well, the issue around biodiversity has really been building up over the years. Uh, We've seen a lot of incidents of ecological collapse. I mean, I'm thinking instances like with uh, the loss of bees that have been happening. Uh, We've seen, you know, forest fires and deforestation um, growing in many places around the world, you know, especially in the Amazon, which has been a place that people have been concerned about for a long time. Uh, And then we're seeing things like the coral reefs, systems uh, collapsing in many places, you know, um, the bleaching and, and, uh, and, you know, part of that is, is because of climate change and climate change is definitely one of the leading causes of biodiversity loss. And, and we're just seeing a lot more litigation and instances of, of protest uh, that have been building up to protect biodiversity. And, and, and that's also led to an increased attention by investors and and these new uh, task force on nature-related financial disclosures and 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 partnerships for biodiversity accounting financials uh, and and new regulations such as um, in in the sustainable um, uh, the SFDR the sustainable finance disclosure regulations in in the EU that are going to require some you know disclosures around biodiversity impacts and biodiversity management. And also, I think COVID, to a certain extent, has maybe, maybe in a certain extent, is is kind of humbled the world to to realize, you know, you know, we are living on one Earth, and problems that happen can affect all of us. Um, that, and also, we've been spending a lot more time outside, going to the parks, and and noticing, you know, wildlife in in the city and the cities that we live in. I mean, in New York City, I saw um, a bunch of owls this year, which was amazing, you know. Uh, and and I and I've heard stories of this happening for many you know for many different um, people around the world. Right. So it seems that biodiversity has become mainstreamed into both our societies and into the energy and mining sector. And mining companies are beginning to understand the financial incentive to mitigate the biodiversity losses that their operations cause. And that is because there is a significant infrastructure required to keep a mine operational. We're talking about roads, pipelines 
dams, operational structures in general, these are all dependent on the proper functioning of natural ecosystems that require biodiversity to thrive. I'm talking about erosion control, soil health, and slope stabilization that's done through vegetation and the protection afforded by ecosystems against natural disasters such as flooding and storm surges. Water is also extremely vital for the mining industry and for many industries in general. All these systems break down if the ecosystem breaks down, and the ecosystem is dependent on the biological variety and variability of life on Earth, aka biodiversity. And our world's biodiversity is in decline. In Europe and Asia, for example, only 23% of species and 16% of its habitats are in good health, according to the WWF. The rainforests in Latin America have seen the worst deforestation in 12 years. Around 1 million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction, many within decades, more than ever before in human history. This is all according to the UN, by the way. But the thing is with biodiversity is it's very regionally specific. And there are these diverse distance and interacting threats that mines can bring to different types of species and ecosystems. But there are areas that we can look at that are basically flashpoints for biodiversity loss controversies. And they are our globe's, quote, biodiversity hotspots, which are defined as places that, one, have at least 1,500 endemic native vascular plant species, and two, have lost 70% of their primary vegetation already. And so what Sam did, alongside Jillian, who you're about to hear from, Jillian is somewhat of a digital cartographer for us. They looked at these hotspots to identify any areas of possible trouble. So when we looked at the biodiversity hotspots, what we did was we put um, over 3,000 mines um, on a global map that really represent um, the sort of global economy of, of mine locations. So they're, they're Mines all over the globe, basically. And we found that um, the, the most mines were located in two of the biodiversity hotspots that were important. One was the uh, tropical Andes, which is an area um, about three times the size of Spain that extends from Venezuela to northern Chile. And this area is very biodiverse. It has over 30,000 plant species and really the largest variety of amphibians, birds, and mammals. Um, so, so really just a, a wonderful area, um, and um, so that's important to keep in mind. Um, we, we also noticed that a lot were in the Mandrian Pine Oak Woodlands, which is a, a rugged mountain area with lots of terrains located in Mexico, and this has also deep canyons, and uh, has over a quarter of the world's oak species. So both of these areas are, are very biodiverse areas, um, and so can, you can imagine that a large mining operations in, in these biodiverse areas would have um, a, a real strong impact there. So let me give you some of, an example of some of those large mining operations. There's the Buena Vista Copper Mine that's in the northwest region of Mexico, which is owned partially by the Southern Copper Corporation. Or there's the Escobar Silver Mine in Guatemala, which is owned in part by Pan America. That's just to name a few. These mines are in both biodiversity hotspots and in intact biodiversity areas. And so in that blog that's on MSCI.com that Jillian and Sam wrote, there's more examples of these areas where we would think that there could be heightened increase of conflict and concerns around biodiversity loss. And these risks are global. I don't just want to pick on the Americas. They crop up in Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia. They are basically everywhere and they are set to increase in the future. So we expect metal mining to increase over the coming decades, and this is due in large part 
to demand for new energy infrastructure and also um, because of continued development in emerging markets. And as we see this demand rise for minerals, uh, this increases the likelihood that metal mining companies will be forced to develop mines in high biodiversity value areas. And in the already built out mines, as biodiversity diminishes with um, operations, we expect to see a decrease in the minerals left to extract. The problem of where to mine has gotten so confusing that there's even serious consideration about trying to mine the deepest parts of our oceans, places where the risks increase tenfold and the biodiversity problems are even more unknown. And there are high stakes political decisions that are being made about infrastructure that can impact our natural world. This week, the Keystone XL pipeline, a contentious pipeline that would have pushed more Canadian crude into the U.S., was scuttled after years of protests, false starts, and failed discussions. It was another example that for highly impactful infrastructure projects, all parties need to ensure there is proper and aligned dialogue between the industry, policymakers, and conservation organizations. As you know, if you've been listening to our show these past couple of weeks, it's the time of company elections, the time when shareholders get to vote on their company's doings or not doings, and to tell them if they are happy or unhappy about the long-term strategy of the companies that they put their capital into. I'm going to try and bring you some of the more interesting stories from this year's proxy season each week. Last week, I talked about what happened at Exxon, and this week, we actually have another environmental bombshell. In a first at a multinational bank, HSBC has had a shareholder resolution passed that commits the bank to phasing out coal-fired power and thermal coal mining financing by 2040. So I wanted to hear more about this, and to do that, I called up my colleague, Ora Toder, to ask about what happened. Because not only is this a huge environmental win, but unlike most resolutions, this resolution is legally binding. Yeah, so um, the shareholder proposal at HSBC passed with over 99% shareholder support, which is really unprecedented and, and a major win for um, shareholder activists. Um, in the UK, you need a 75% threshold um, that is required for a resolution to pass. And, and once it does, it's legally binding. Um, and that means that shareholders can take legal action against the board if the proposal is not implemented and that can carry high legal and reputational costs. So and now that the resolution passed, HSBC is committed to phase out financing of coal by 2040 globally. Um, and they also have to set short-term and medium-term uh, targets to align um, the bank's financing with the goals of the Paris Agreement. They also have to report um, annually on this progress. Um, and in the next six months until the end of the year, HSBC has to engage with um, ShareAction, which is the NGO that coordinated um, the investor coalition behind the shareholder proposal. Um, and ShareAction has specific demands from HSBC. Uh, for example, it argued that um, the coal policy should apply not only to its banking operations, but also to its asset management arm. And if investors are not satisfied with um, HSBC's policies and targets this year, we might see another climate proposal at the 2022 general shareholder meeting. So why did this pass by so much? I mean, usually when we see shareholder resolutions that pass, uh, they pass by like 51%. You know, it's just a, a small margin. Sometimes they get up to 75 But why did this get 99% of shareholder support? Did something different happen 
with HSBC and the shareholders and you know things like that? Yeah, that's really unprecedented, and it's mostly due to the fact that both management and the board supported the proposal, and it's really this engagement effort between um, the bank and its investors um, that was crucial to to pass the proposal, um, because other banks such as the um, it's UK peer Barclays, um, they the management at Barclays did not back the shareholder climate proposal, and the result is that um, it only received 14% uh, votes in favor, which is um, um, not enough to meet the 75% threshold to be to pass and to be legally blind, uh, binding. Okay, so tune in every week uh, until proxy season's over. We'll try to bring you some of the more interesting resolutions for your earballs. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Sam and Jillian and Aura for talking to me about this week's news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And of course, subscribe if you're not already a subscribed listener. Thanks again and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.